Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us this morning for worship. I want to begin with a basic principle that comes from sports, and it goes like this. The clock determines the play. So we can think about this. Anybody who's ever played sports for any amount of time knows the reality of this, that in the beginning of a game, um, you run a series of plays based off of what's happening in the game, some, some more casual and repeated than others. But let's say you get to the end of the game. There's two minutes left. You're down by 10. The nature of the way you play those last two minutes is very different than if you were up in the score. You begin to play desperately. You begin to play with a lot of... Um, just radical, experimental, Hail Mary type approaches to how you're playing the game. You leave it out all on the field because you got nothing to lose at the end of the game if you're down. You need to do everything you can to try and get some points. As we enter into our gospel story this morning, Jesus is in that kind of moment. A moment where the clock is winding down, and as we turn our page to Mark chapter 14, we enter into the passion narrative. We make that big shift into the final moments of Jesus' journey to the cross. And we're going to be studying from here on out all of the events that led Jesus to this moment. And so I invite you this morning to turn to Mark chapter 14, and we will begin reading at verse 1. It says this, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my burial for my burial. Today I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to, went to, the chief priest to de betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What a radiant picture of worship we have this morning. And it's also so important for us to 
think about the backdrop of Jesus' spiritual experience as he's entering into this journey to the cross. One of the scriptures that always stands out to me when I'm thinking about this journey that Jesus took is one that has perplexed me, confounded me, and also given me great hope all in one verse. It's from Hebrews 12.2. It says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The part that always gets me is that bit about joy. For the joy set before Jesus in this moment, he is going to willfully enter into this journey of suffering, of pain, of sorrow, and of sacrifice. And he's going to do that somehow with joy. Perhaps our story this morning gives us a clue as to how Jesus could possibly take this journey with joy. Jesus is already in a place that he probably shouldn't be in. He's at a leper's house, but that is actually a good place to hide out if there's some religious leaders that are looking for you because a leper's house would have been deemed unclean and we don't know what uh, phase of this leper's journey, if he was healed or if he's currently a leper. But he's there in the final week of his life and he's reclining at the table when all of a sudden a woman comes in with a jar of expensive perfume and she cracks it open and she pours it out over Jesus' head. This must have been quite a scene for anyone who was there on that day. In this picture of Jesus, we get Jesus reclining at the table when all of a sudden somebody, a woman, bursts in and pours expensive perfume all over his head. Now, I've smelt a little perfume in my day, and I'm sure a whole jar of perfume would have been totally repugnant at some point. There must have been so much wafting of this intense smell throughout the air that it would have sort of scandalized the people that were there and disrupted everything that they were doing and taken over the atmosphere of what was going on as they were trying to relax and recline at the table. And also we can note that this is a a time when uh, we can hearken back to a story we just read a few weeks ago where there was another woman who brought another beautiful sacrifice, a woman who was a widow who brought the sacrifice to the temple of just the two pennies that she had and laid them in the treasury. And that was an example that Jesus taught his disciples of giving from a place of insecurity from a place of true sacrifice. And this woman, too, brings in a year's worth of wages in this perfume and dumps it on Jesus' head. And it really raises the question in that room, is Jesus worthy of this act of worship? 
Now, for the disciples in particular, we don't know which disciple, but we might locate it as Judas Iscariot, who was most scandalized by this particular demonstration of worship because we see that the disciples were upset about the way that these finances of this woman were being used. Such an extravagant display of worship to Jesus. And they think more practically, they're thinking, man, if we had this year's wages, what we could do with it, the programs we could start, the poor people that we could help. But Jesus, in this moment, reminds the disciples that they have every other day to care for the poor. But in this urgent moment, with the time running out on the clock, that what this woman has done will be forever remembered and shared as good news of a truly worthy sacrifice. You see, they're living in a liminal space. A liminal space is a space where what was is over, and what is next has yet to come. And they're in the final moments of this liminal space, this space where Jesus um, is moving the interaction, the way that the world will commune with God. From its Old Testament expression in the temple with many different sacrifices and many different laws and many different um, rituals and festivals that were all designed so that the people of God, one people in one place, would be able to have communion with God. And that's one expression of what temple is. But Jesus is moving the temple out into the world again. He's taking what was once sacred in the temple and he's seen how it's become corrupted and so it needs a new, fresh expression in the world. And so Jesus is ushering in this new era of communion with God, but in this moment they are in that liminal space in between what was old and what is new and it is causing crisis. It's causing great disruption and It's causing confusion and certain people get certain amount of insight and other people are getting hard-hearted and beginning to become judgmental and frustrated because what they knew is being disrupted and, and they can't see why. They don't understand what God is doing in this new thing yet because they're in the in-between. And I think it's in this liminal space, in this space in the in-between where this type of worship is most important. That is actually in this moment of crisis where the worship and pointing towards Jesus as the one who is worthy of worship is the utmost expression of what is important in the in-between. We see that when the people of God, these same people who should have remembered these lessons, had moved out of slavery and 
before they were in the promised land, they lived in the wilderness. And the wilderness is the fundamental liminal space. That in-between space. It is that space where true disciples learn how to depend on God. When Jesus is baptized, he is then led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God because there is a lesson to learn in the wilderness and that lesson comes from a testing of who he is. And in that testing, he's, he's tested, will you make these rocks into bread? And he says, no. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word from God. And so he is revealing that what is learned in the wilderness is total reliance on God. In that liminal space is where we discover that worship is most essential. That in the valley is the place where we need to be true worshipers, where we become refined and challenged and tested. And it is in that space where we meet this woman. This woman who in the midst of this crisis, in the space in between where the location of the temple and the worship in the temple and the communion of God is being moved out into the world, to the cross, the very center of the world, so now just not one people would be able to worship God, but the entire world would now have access to commune with God and the sins of the entire world would be atoned for by the one true sacrifice. And Jesus lets us know that he's not going to take a shower from when he gets all this perfume poured on his head until he is prepared for burial. And he says, what this woman has done is actually prepared me for my burial. So that means as we begin the Jesus journey to the cross and we see him here take the first steps into that journey that every step along the way, the smell of this woman's sacrifice and true worship to him would be constantly coming from him, filling his nostrils, filling the air around him, covering him as he prays and is attacked by Roman soldiers and with him as he is put before a trial and questioned and accused. With him as he remains silent during his accusations, with him as he's beaten and flogged and put a crown of thorns around his head, with him as he's nailed to the cross, all the while smelling the sweet perfume, reminding him of who he is as the once and for all sacrifice. We are living in a liminal space right now. The pandemic has caused us to leave behind what was, and we are not sure what is next. And not only that, but we're also, because of the internet, shifting from an industrial age 
into a digital age. And so what's next has been left behind, but we all are forced to navigate the, I mean, what, what was is left behind, and now we're all being forced to navigate this new world, this new landscape that is certainly unknown and feels like a wilderness, and at the beginning gave us great promises of total prosperity, gave us great promises of if we just buy the right technology that we can make the nice, safe, wonderful life that will create the utopian society that we all long for. But now, a few years in, with this technology, we're beginning to discover the true vulnerabilities. And the COVID-19 is exposing even more so the vulnerabilities of this new digital age. And it is amplified, and the world has gone from structures that we recognize to totally flat. And all of the authorities that we once Look to like Walter Cronkite on the news telling us what was going on in America have been completely dismantled to this network of um, internet connectivity that is bringing up different news based off of clicks and attention based off of decentralized, um, sometimes unvetted, lacking professional accountability in the way that we even understand our world and get the facts. And all of this has left us exhausted. What's been beautiful about globalization is our ability to mix cultures and planes, to fly anywhere in the world and bring goods and services from anywhere in the world. And that made us feel powerful and mighty and experience a human uh, experience that no humans before us could even dream or imagine. But also now we see that the sickness and the pandemic can travel on these planes and go everywhere around the world. And so for the very first time in human history, we have one global pandemic, one primary problem that every human being across the globe is experiencing, and we've never had to deal with this before. And it's disrupting the way that we live and understand the world. Martin Gurry writes it this way, the mirror in which we used to find ourselves faithfully reflected in the world has been shattered. The great narratives are fracturing into shards. What passed for authority is devolving to political warband and online mob, deprived of a legitimate authority to interpret events and settle f factual disputes. We fly apart from each other, or rather we flee into our own heads. I love how Dave named it last week. He called it an age of impermanence. And I believe what's being argued here by Martin Gurry is that because of this age of impermanence, we are left with an age of anxiety. 
we're watching the world be turned upside down once again at an increasing rate that is fostering in us increasing levels of great anxiety. So many of us left to navigate this landscape and this week I've spent so much time praying for teachers and students who are trying to do online school or some kind of hybrid and parents who have to teach their children who are now at home and also try and make a living. And we're exhausted. The culture is exhausted. And if you find yourself looking online and saying, I don't fall into this camp or that camp, I don't know where I fit. I know you are not alone. And here is the good news about crisis. It completely obliterates our idol. Remember that idol? I keep bringing it up, but actually the sermon series we did right before we went into the COVID crisis, remember, was about idols. And we identified that comfort was the number one idol that our community struggles with. And then our idol was completely obliterated. And I think the easiest way to say this is that what crisis does, the good news of crisis, is that it brings us to the realization that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this in our own strength. It actually takes away the myth the cultural myth that we can be atlas and throw the whole world on our shoulders and think that by our sheer might and achievement that we can create what we desire most as human beings. And so in this place in between, my prayer for our church is that we would look to these examples like this woman who gave and it hurt, who gave and it made her vulnerable, who gave and exposed what she thought about Jesus. That he was the only authority worthy of such praise and worship and adoration, worthy of the greatest gift that she possessed. And she was willing to break into somebody's house and dump perfume onto this great spiritual authority's head in the midst of a bunch of men who would have been totally scandalized by the whole thing, and she did not care. She pressed in, she pressed in through all of the obstacles because she knew that she had to get to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only worthy spiritual authority. This is what we all hunger for. And what's being revealed right now is that when we pursue any other idol, idols of comfort or achievement or self-reliance or numbing or whatever it might be, that it will eventually leave us exhausted. Is it possible that the entire world could come to the realization that the choices that it's making are leaving it exhausted and weary? And so we need a change. 
We need something different, and we know we don't have what we used to have, and we don't really know what the new thing will be. But in the in-between, what we can do is worship the true authority, which is Jesus Christ. I love some of A.W. Tozer's quotes around worship. They are so beautiful. And one of the things he does is actually comment, uh, tell a story in his book, Worship, about Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal, you might know from Pascal's Wager, which is used sometimes as a rational argument about how believing in God, if you believe in God and God isn't real, that you have nothing to lose by doing that. But if you don't believe in God and God is real, that you have a whole lot to lose in that scenario. And so why not believe in God? But more than that, hear this story of what A.W. Tozer says about Blaise Pascal, who was a great mathematician and scientist in his day. It says this, we need, we need not be afraid of a genuine visitation of the Spirit of God. Blaise Pascal, the famed 17th century French scientist and philosopher, experienced in his lifetime a personal, overwhelming encounter with God that changed his life. Those who attended him at his death found a worn, creased paper in his clothing, close to his heart, apparently a reminder of what he had felt and sensed in God's very presence. In Pascal's own hand it read, from about half past ten at night to about half after midnight, fire. O God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of philosophers or the wise, the God of Jesus Christ who can be known only in the way of the gospel. Security, feeling, peace, joy, tears of joy, amen. Were these the expressions of a fanatic, Tozerites, an extremist? No, it was the ecstatic utterance of a yielded man during two awesome hours in the presence of God. The astonished Pascal could only describe the visitation in one word, fire. You see, what Pascal discovered in that moment of worship was the only thing that could truly quench his thirst on this earth was the living God. And those two hours were so important to him that he wrote about them on a piece of paper and kept it close to his heart. I'm sure that so that in moments of great crisis or anxiety or fear that he could return again to that moment, just those two hours where he had experienced the presence of God. You see, in this moment of crisis, we see that the church is having a moment of burning of the chaff. Where the things that don't honor God, the comforts that were distracting us from God are being dealt with. And what we will have in the end is something more authentic, something more true. And the people who will come out the other side of this pandemic 
will have a refined faith. A faith where the accoutrements of church and entertainment and the ways they've married themselves to the powers and institutions of our time will be left aside and in its place there will be only those who desire to worship Jesus. You see, online church is being reported across the globe that it flared up at the beginning, but the reality is is that if you're watching this, you have to make a choice. Or once you got to see your friends, have a cup of coffee, now you're choosing to worship God in your home. Where once you may have been able to leave your family behind if they didn't want to join you now, if you're watching this, you're watching and they're seeing you worship in your house. And God has moved the worship experience from the sanctuary into your home. And so there is a sacrifice. But in the midst of that sacrifice, it's drawing out a deeper desire. Do you really want to worship Jesus in the midst of crisis? Is that your priority? Or for those of us who will join outside, those who can join us outside, they will be there with masks on, unable to sing and pretty uncomfortable but still showing up because more than anything else, they want to worship God and learn about God. These are the types of sacrifices that are fragrant offerings to our Lord. As the economy changes and things get tighter, we'll be asked time and time again, will we give in a way that makes us vulnerable? That will we sacrifice to Jesus and worship Jesus no matter what comes our way in this time in between? What is left will be deeper, truer, and more meaningful. What time is it in the kingdom of God, we might ask? And I pray that it is a time where we would go through personal renewal and refining so that we will see corporate renewal in our community and in our world. And perhaps we can put our hope in this truth from Hebrews 10.39. It says, my friends, we are not those who give up hope and so are lost but we are of the company who live by faith and who are saved. And maybe our hope looks like this from Song of Solomon 8.5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? This picture of coming out of the wilderness with a new reliance on the only one who's worthy of our praise our beloved one. Tozer also wrote this about Pascal. 
And the same Pascal from whom I have quotes, fire, fire, joy, joy, tears of joy, said, I'm going to write so that the world will get it. I'd like my voice to be made over all of the world to the poor, to the poor church leaving, living on cheap fiction, living on the smiles and bows of converted celebrities, living to sing cheap songs about I once smoked and now I don't, I once drank beer and now I don't. Thank God that you don't, ha- you don't drink, brother. It's cheaper not to and healthier. But if that's your concept of Christianity, you haven't seen the door of the outer chambers, let alone the Holy of Holies or the Sanctum Santorum. Let's push all in. Let's tell the world why he died and why he lives. That a people who were once made to worship him, who had lost their harp and their tongue and lost their desire to even worship, are now caught and renewed and made alive and able to worship again. And it works, my brethren. It works. Tozer said, God made us to worship him, and when we do worship him, we are, when we don't worship him, we are stars without light, sun without heat, clouds without water, and birds without a song. And so my prayer is that you would put your worship this morning where it belongs. Put your trust this morning where it belongs. Put your hope this morning where it belongs. Put your sacrifice this morning where it belongs, and you would discover everything you've been looking for. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you now. Would you foster and transform our desperation into deep, communion with you in the holy of holies in the recesses in us that you have called the new temple where your holy spirit dwells and may we return again to what is most essential we bring ourselves as living sacrifices to you knowing we cannot do this on our own and we are totally reliant on you this morning for our next steps into the next week. And we receive now your peace, your joy, in place of our worry. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen.